Okay, so we are making our way through the Satipatthana Sutta, and we're getting near the end, to the climax. And um, we're in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is the foundations of mindfulness of the Dhammas, or Dharmas. And usually translators will uh, translate this as the mental quality, or the mental content, content of mind, the Dharmas. Um, in this context. Um, it's not so clear what dharma means in this context, um, but it doesn't really matter so much. What matters is that um, uh, is the particular exercises that are given um, in this section of the text. And the text gives five different exercises for developing mindfulness or ways of establishing mindfulness by focusing on five different areas of our psychological life. And... Um, more, much more so than the earlier sections, which are much more matter-of-fact, kind of bare attention, just notice things how, how they are. Here, there's actually much more of a, of a um, process orientation where the person understand, understands not only things as they are in the moment, the larger process that they're part of, um, psychological process, in particular those processes that either lead to greater suffering or keep us in the cycles of suffering, or those processes that lead us to liberation. And so there's five different areas that the, the text talks about here. The five hindrances, the five aggregates, which we talked about last week. Today we'll talk about the six uh, bases, the six senses. And then uh, next time we'll talk about the seven factors of awakening. And then the last uh, section is the four noble truths. And... It's really an amazing collection in this category of dharmas of some of the central teachings that the Buddha taught through his life, um, central categories of ways in which the Buddha wanted to look at and understand the psychological life that uh, is addressed through practice. And, And he gave teachings on each of these five in many different ways. And then here in this text, all five are brought together and held together as part of the process of developing mindfulness as mindfulness uh, leads towards liberation. And you can maybe understand that, uh, that if you want liberation, if you want to be freed from the cycles of suffering, you need to understand something about how suffering comes into play and some of the psychological forces that, that are responsible for suffering. And you need to have some uh, perception, understanding of those forces that come into play as we get more liberated, as we become free. So the seven factors of awakening have to do with those psychological processes that come into play as liberation happens. And the Four Noble Truths have to do with the insights that a person uh, either sees or uses as part of the process, uh, the path of liberation. Uh, Today's uh, section is on the five bases, uh, the six bases, the ayatanas. And they are... um, it's probably uh, the part of the Satipatthana Sutta that's least talked about of all the different sections um, uh, of the text. Even the corpse meditations are talked about sometimes in, in, in talks, and, but uh, the, the, uh, the six bases hardly ever talked about. Um, so um, in a few moments I'll read it, the little section. The six bases are... Um, there's, there's two categories of them. There's six internal bases and the six external bases. And the internal bases are the six uh, senses. Because in Buddhism there's six senses. 
uh, there's the normal five that we have, and then there's a sixth sense, which is that sense, um, sense door, that sense apparatus that perceives or understands uh, what's going on in our inner life, like our thoughts. When we can see that we're having a thought, there's a sense perception going on, or if we have a feeling, an emotion, or an intention. In order to perceive that the existence of that, Buddhists will say there's this sense door, the sense that's, that's aware of that. So there's six sense doors. So the door of, of, uh, of uh, the eye, the door of the ear, the door of the, um, or the base of the ear, of, this, of the eye, the base of the ear, the base of the tongue, the base of um, touch, or the tactile thing, the base of smell, and then the base of uh, the mind, mind organ, the mind sense. That's a, those are the six internal bases. The six external bases are um, the objects of those senses. So um, if you're looking at something, that any, any, any form that you see in the world, any color that you see in the world, shape you see in the world, is the, is the external sense base that corresponds with the eye. And when an external form somehow comes in contact with the eye, then seeing happens. And so um, uh, the sounds is, is the external sense uh, uh, base for hearing and same for smells and for tactile experiences as we get touched in some various ways. And the foods, tastes that come in, and then the thoughts, the feelings, the intentions we have that um, the mind door picks up. So, um, it's a little bit of Buddhist psychology, kind of how the, how the Buddhists uh, kind of traditionally divide up the, the, the senses. Now, what is um, crucial now in this section here is they talk about paying attention to these six internal bases and six external bases and paying attention to the knot that can arise in between them or the yoke or the entanglement. It's usually translated as the fetter. So I might see something. The eye makes contact with an object out there and then there's some entanglement that arises at that sense door. I want that. Or I want to get rid of it or something. Um, so, you know, some kind of grasping, some kind of clinging comes into place. And that has this very techno- technical term called a knot. Uh, which probably in English uh, might be more understandable to call it an entanglement. We get entangled in that thing. The mind somehow gets entangled. So if you're sitting here, and for example, like of the bell, and you see this beautiful bell that we have, and you think, you know, I want that bell. And you start spending, spending the next five minutes imagining how you might get that bell. You are now entangled in that sight object. So it can happen in any of the six doors, sense doors. And in order, you need to understand this entanglement because the process, the path of practice is one that leads to the disentangling from all these knots. So that we can just see a bell and there's no entanglement with it. There's no stickiness to it. There's no complications that we have in relationship to the bell. 
the mind is free in relationship to the bell. You see the bell, it's a nice bell. Maybe the thought arises, be nice to have it, but nothing happens. The mind is not entangled, not caught. There's no Velcro in the mind around the bell. So that's the um, kind of the background for this particular section. And here is the paragraph. And this is um, Tanisra Bhikkhu's translation. I've usually been reading from um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, but uh, that particular text is in a box uh, in the back somewhere because they, they packed up the library for part of this because they're going to put in the new floor in the library too. So I came down here thinking, I'll just get the book off the bookshelf, and it wasn't there. But this one I did find. So it's a little bit different way, uh, words. Furthermore, the monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the six internal and external sense media. And how does he or she remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the six-fold internal and external sense media? There is the case where he or she discerns the eye, discerns forms, sight objects, and discerns the fetter that arises dependent on them. He or she she discerns how there is the arising of an unarisen fetter, and he or she discerns how there is the abandoning of a fetter once it has arisen. And he or she discerns how there is no further appearance in the future of a fetter that has been abandoned. And the same formula is repeated for the remaining sense media, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And uh, then there's the refrain that appears at every of these sections, that uh, um, in this way he remains focused internally on mental qualities in and of themselves, or externally on mental qualities in and of themselves. And And he or she remains independent, unsustained, by not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves. So it's pretty a bare bones, the description, but, they, uh, but it's a very fascinating practice that the text is encouraging us to do. And that is to stay attentive at the sense doors, to stay attentive at the primary place where we pick up our experience of the world. And by paying attention there, pay attention to how the mind gets entangled with the world, how it gets caught by it in various ways. Now, it doesn't take a lot of analysis to realize that people uh, don't spend a lot of time at the sense doors in a very kind of careful, direct way. We get lost from it very quickly. We spend a lot of time lost, often in a world of abstractions, thinking about the future, thinking about the the past, planning, worrying, having conversations, having fantasies. And um, and it might have been stimulated by some initial contact with the world. You're driving down 101 and you see a billboard for some wonderful product. And maybe they have a billboard for a PDA. Is that what they call them? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and you miss your exit because you're fantasizing about how your life will be all better if you can organize it on, a, on your palm. And, you know, so there was an external contact 
with a sight object, and then the mind got entangled with that and got lost, got carried carried away into that. And it, uh, people will spend many, many minutes, I mean, innumerable minute, number of minutes sometimes, lost in worlds of abstraction. And they're kind of aware of the world. I mean, they don't go bumping into walls and tripping into cars or something. They kind of know. But the primary place where people's awareness is residing is not in the world, but rather it's a little bit, you know, caught up in the inner world of of, um, of their thoughts and abstractions. And then we have, you know, for example, in um, Western psychology now, the idea of projection, which the Buddhist equivalent would be this uh, term, papancha. And uh, if the idea of projection is right, I mean, I think some, Jung, some Jungian psychologists believe that that's all we ever do is go around and constantly projecting. We see everything through projections. I don't know if it's that much, but um, I hope not, because the whole Buddhist endeavor would be kind of undercut then. But, um, but you know, so to the degree in which we do kind of see people through the filter of our bias, through our images, through our memories, through all kinds of projections, um, we're not seeing people directly as they actually are. We're not seeing them at the primary kind of sense contact, in a sense, but we're seeing them through the filter of our abstractions. So we're often kind of somewhat removed from uh, our senses. Some people are much more removed than others. They're kind of lost from their senses entirely. They're not much in touch with their body or touch with what's going on. Um, It's uh, relatively common for people to give Dharma talks. I've heard a number of them. uh, Emphasizing that everything that we know about the world begins at a sense contact. And everything else after that is something that's built and constructed on that. You know, but everything, our experience of the world, is at the sense doors. There's a, a idea in Buddhism that the mind is um, solitary. Our minds are solitary, cave dwelling, solitary creatures. And the explanation for this, why the mind is solitary is that um, minds cannot touch each other. We, the, the mind gets touched. We touch each other through the uh, media. Tanisra Bhikkhu calls it the sense media. Through the media, through the medium of our senses. We say something and there's all this understanding of what people are saying that arises and that touches us in some way. Or we touch each other and physically and that touches us in some deeper way. And so there can be a very great intimacy that arises but the minds don't touch each other, ever. So the minds are solitary. But everything, our experience of the world, happens through our senses. And um, so that's what's also considered most real, is what we experience directly through our six senses. The world of abstraction that we build based on the senses may or may not be real. It may be quite... Uh, fantastical, phantasmagoric is a wonderful word. The world that sometimes we live in, where we imagine all kinds of things of what's out there. And um, so, in relationship to the six senses, a very classic and central practice taught by the Buddha is a practice that's usually the description that's usually described in English or translated into English is as the. Um, guarding the sense doors 
And I don't like to translate it that way so much because the idea of guarding a sense door seems to suggest to me a little bit and to others uh, the idea of kind of being uptight and kind of closed off and, you know, kind of like, you know, cautious, excessively cautious and kind of, you know, held, holding off, kind of distant, removed, you know, you know, guarding the sense doors like as if sense experiences are bad or not, you're not supposed to have them or something. And, and um, so I don't know if that connotation arises uh, for you when you hear about, you know, you should, you should sit, guard your senses, guard, guard the sense doors. But the sense of it I have is, um, uh, is a little bit different. And so I translate a little bit differently, and that is, I translate, I like translating as safeguarding oneself at the sense doors. So safeguarding, um, the, uh, the, uh, our inner, the quality of our hearts, quality of our mind, the good quality, good of our mind, the good quality of our hearts. That, um, so that when we're going around in the world, and some stimulus comes, that we don't get entangled in that stimulus, and the mind doesn't get lost. Contracted, uptight, afraid, um, ambitious, you know, all kinds of ways in which the mind gets caught or entangled. We stay there at the sense doors, attentive to what comes in to us, take responsibility for how we react to that, and then um, try to stay unentangled, say, try to maintain a good quality of mind. So one of the ways of doing this is to, um, that I find very fascinating time, is... Um, uh, after your meditation, you meditate in the morning, and to some degree your mind might be calmer than usual, it might be more settled, it might be a little bit more higher quality of inner life than it had been if you'd just been running around and doing all kinds of things. And so you want to safeguard that nice inner quality, that sense of well-being. And so one of the ways to do it is to stay attentive at the six sense doors to see what comes in to the system and then how you react to that. So, you know, you might finish your meditation, you had a lovely meditation in the morning and the first thing you notice after you open your eyes is you notice the clock and the time. Now, that's an innocent enough thing. Time is an abstraction that human beings have created to some degree and um, and it's arbitrary a little bit how we say it is because we have daylight savings time and not and, you know, we see this time and... but. We see, see this time, and then the mind thinks about all the things it has to do during the day. And somehow the mind has been knotted up in seeing that. But if you hang out, if, if you don't take responsibility, if you don't pay attention there at the moment, then pretty soon you're entangled and lost in the entanglements. But there's an opportunity there. As you come out of meditation, you have this relative sense of well-being. To notice that initial impulse to get entangled and that idea of time and then to back up a little bit. Start over again. Just you know, close your eyes or, or take a deep breath and realize what happened and see if you can just let go of that in order to maintain that good feeling, that good mental quality, that good sense of well-being that might have been there as part of meditation. You safeguard it. As opposed to realizing, oh, time to get started on that big agenda. So we dash off the cushion, we run into the kitchen, we turn on the coffee, we turn on the radio, we turn on the television, we put the food in the toaster, and, um, and, um, and while we're smearing you know, butter on the bread, we're pulling on our socks and trying to drink the coffee through some other orifice. I don't know how we do it all. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and rushing you know, along. That's you know, one strategy. 
But that doesn't seem doesn't feel like it's going to maintain much good quality of, of our inner life, right? So, so and part of the opportunity in that exercise of paying attention to how we get entangled as we leave meditation is that you can also look at the values, the beliefs, and the um, um, that come into play that get you to think, oh, it's important now to run around like crazy doing all these things in order to get all these things accomplished. Who says that? There's no manual that goes along. You know, a human being says, thou must do four things at once having breakfast so you can get on with your life and do 32 things in one day. There's no, you know. So on what, what's the belief systems that come into play that is triggering you to get entangled? That can be a very fascinating study to make as you leave meditation. So safeguarding uh, ourselves at the senses is a classic Buddhist practice. Now, one of the senses, of course, is um, the mind. And so we have to safeguard ourselves what we do with what arises in the mind. So we're sitting there minding our own business and our mind has a thought, innocent thought about... What? Has any of you had, a, had an innocent thought today? <laughs> that you got entangled with? So you're sitting there and thinking about... What? Paying debts. Paying debts. That's an innocent enough thought, you know, debts. I'm in debt. Oh. And then for the next 24 hours, the mind is entangled with thoughts about debt and all the associated thoughts around debt and and you know how could I ever got myself in debt and why didn't my parents give me better financial education growing up and and they didn't have economics when I was in high school and that's you know and my school system really sucked back then because they should have should have taught us about credit cards and all those things and I wasn't you know no one ever taught me about credit cards and, and so the mind you know starts getting lost in this inner world that's constructing and making and inventing and reacting to. And there can be a lot of contraction, a lot of... We get entangled to our entanglements. But initially, there was just a little simple thought. Oh, I'm in debt. And maybe it's not so innocent, but... but So we have to pay attention there also to the thoughts that arise and not to be take our, our thinking as some for granted or thinking that thinking that <laughs> that um, we can think whatever we want. That there is a way which we react to the thoughts that arise. So I like to distinguish between um, thoughting and thinking. And uh, I'm the only one I know who says uses the word thoughting. But uh, it's my idea that the mind, what the mind does, it thoughts. And um, it just produces these thoughts. And you can't be, you can't control what thoughts your mind's going to produce next. But you do have some control over the train of thinking, the the chain of thoughts that the mind gets involved in. And so you don't have to start making a chain of associations and you don't have to get caught up in in thinking. Sometimes you don't seem to have much choice, but there's times it's very clear you have choice. Oh, I don't need to think about that. Or now I think I need to start thinking about something else now. It becomes April 13th and it's useful sometimes to think, I need to think about paying my taxes. How am I going to do that? Where do I get those tax forms? And where do I 
get my documents and all that. It's a little bit late to have done it, probably, but, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's possible to, you know, take responsibility a little bit for how we're thinking, how we're reacting, the intentions that arise. You can't control necessarily attention, the intention that arises, but you can consider how you relate to that intention. So, uh, Tanisra Bhikkhu, we translated this uh, version here, he has this wonderful um, analogy for the mind that the mind is like a board meeting. And, um, and there's all these directors of the board sitting around the table. And, and uh, however, you're the CEO of the board. And uh, you have no control over the other directors. They do whatever they do. I mean, you can't control what they say or what they don't say. They just say what they're going to do. However, the CEO has uh, veto power. And um, so nothing happens. There's no act that's made without the CEO agreeing to go along with it because the CEO will say veto power. So you won't say anything. You won't do anything unless, um, you know, know, the CEO buys in. So I think there's a nice analogy of how the mind is. You know, you can't control your mind 100%, and all this stuff happens to the mind. It's quite marvelous, you know, how the mind creates thoughts and ideas and images. And the mind can be a phenomenally creative event. The mind has a mind of its own. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, you have some choice about what you do with what arises in the mind. And if nothing else, you have the veto power. No, I'm not going to say that. No, I'm not going to continue that train train of thought. No, I'm not going to... Uh, act on that, and um, and I think it's very empowering, very helpful to realize that uh, these two things that that you're not in, not in, in, you're not in charge of what arises pops up in your mind, you're not in, in charge of what pops up in your heart necessarily, but you have this power of veto. You don't say, "Oh no, I'm not going to do that." I know that I I, I felt uh, starting feeling very comfortable at meetings I used to go to. A lot, like uh, when I was at Zen Center and at Spirit Rock, various places where uh, there were a lot of contentious things being discussed. And uh, when I realized that uh, we basically were operating under a consensus model, and um, and if I said no, I don't think I want to go along with that, uh, then uh, everybody stopped. The whole process kind of stopped or whatever. And so I didn't have to rush in and say what I thought immediately. I could just watch the conversation for a while and I didn't have to feel tight or upset about it or, or tense about what was going on and my opinion and when it was heard. And uh, I could just wait and when it's time set, time was right or when there was a pause in the conversation, I could say, oh, you know, I don't think I agree with that. Anyway, so I hope that analogy is helpful for you guys in your minds that you have the veto power. Um, So our whole experience of the world begins at the sense doors. And pretty much everything else is an abstraction based on that. And it might be a relevant or, or accurate abstraction of sorts, but, but it is an abstraction. So what happens if we come down and start living much more at the primary level where life is initially initiated, where life has begun, at the experiences of the senses of the world? Now, that comes very close to, or maybe the same thing, as a common uh, instruction, uh, uh, be in the present moment as you practice mindfulness. Be in the present. Be in the present. Notice what's going on. The wind blowing against your cheek, or the sounds of the car driving by, or 
or um, you know whatever that whatever is going on, the experience of your breathing as you breathe. Um, but uh, to practice a kind of sens- sensory awareness exercise, I like to think of mindfulness as a sensory awareness exercise, because such a huge part of mindfulness is to stay there at the level of the senses and experiences what's happening at the felt sense of our experience, what's happening at the sense point of all our experiences. So we have a strong emotion that arises, a difficult emotion perhaps, and then the task of mindfulness, the primary one is to be with a felt sense of that difficult emotion, a strong emotion, what it's like sensually, at the sense level, as opposed to spending a lot of time analyzing or thinking about why it's there. Just kind of be there for how it is in this moment now at the six senses, which includes also the mind, which, you know, a lot of things could be happening there. But um, but staying there as it's unfolding in the present moment, in the present moment uh, as experienced at these six sense doors. And then becoming aware of the fetters, of the knots, of some yojana, the, um, uh, the entanglements that arise. And um, and then learning how to let go of those entanglements, learning how to untangle yourself so that our experiences of the senses, so our experiences of the world and experiences of our inner life is one that is unentangled, unencumbered, uh, unobstructed, just kind of a clean, clear uh, relationship to how things are happening in the present moment. The classic um, um, definition, one of the most classic definitions of what happens to a person when they get liberated in Buddhism is a description of absence. What 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 is what a person is free from? There's very little. There's little bit hints there here and there, but there's very little description in the classic Buddhist texts of of kind of positive. How do I say it? The the um, there's very little description or definition of enlightenment in terms of what is present. Like you have some great experience, or this great experience, oneness with nature, or or self, you know, no self, or or um, you know, infinite consciousness. Or there's all you know, all kinds of ways in which people define enlightenment, and maybe they're all fine and wonderful. But the Buddhist tradition um, doesn't define hardly ever. Um, Enlightenment from the point of view of what is present, but rather does it from the point of view of what is absent. And it does primarily then through the classically through the, abs- the the ten knots, the ten entanglements that a person has become free from. And um, it's the same word, samyojana, the ten fetters. And uh, so if I go through the list, maybe they don't make complete sense to you, but uh, just keep it, keep it maybe there in the back of your mind. The seed. The first uh, fetter, the first way we get entangled unnecessarily with the world is by uh, taking things personally. Have you heard that before? It's called the personality uh, view, having the personality view. Kind of the view that, um, you know, that there is a kind of person here that you can define by your experiences in some way. And the second is um, the... um, the entanglement of doubt. And um, it's said that until you really had some real taste of liberation, it's a little hard to really know for sure what is and isn't the path of practice. And so the, the mind will have, almost naturally have a little bit of doubt 
And um, it said that that fetter of doubt will vanish at some point. The third uh, fetter is that fetter of entanglement of um, believing that uh, rites and rituals in and of themselves or virtue in and of itself will lead a person to liberation. And often people say it's like believing that's simply chanting a mantra or going through certain kind of rituals or carrying crystals or something is going to kind of do what it takes to become enlightened. There may be wonderful things to do, but the tradition says that if you believe this is what's going to get you ultimately liberated, that's an entanglement. And that entanglement you become free of when you really understand the nature of the practice and what the practice, what, 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 what it takes to become free of the tangles. The um, fourth fetter is the fetter of sensual desire. And it doesn't take a lot of thinking to realize how much we, you know, we get human beings, um, occasionally at least, uh, get entangled to sensual desire of all kinds. The fifth, I- the fo- the fifth is um, the uh, tangle of ill will, of, of um, resentment, of anger, of bitterness, of hate, of uh, aversion. And that's a place people get entangled with their world and with themselves. So that fetter dissolves. The sixth is uh, fetter is the attachment or clinging. Actually, the sixth and the seventh, both of them, are at, uh, clingings to uh, particular deep states of meditation. And I like to think of it as being clinging to spiritual experiences. Uh, there's no spiritual experience which you're supposed to cling to in Buddhism. And in fact, maybe one of the reasons why enlightenment is defined by the absence of something is so we don't confuse enlightenment by some spiritual experience. Some experience is going to be the thing. So um, that fetter of clinging to spiritual experiences, after all these years of spiritual practice, I finally got this great experience of oneness. It's, I got it. Don't hold on to it. Don't cling to that. And then... Um, so then there's um, this, the seventh one is the seventh way in which we get kind of entangled with the world is conceit. All the ways in which we compare ourselves to others or to certain standards. I'm better than, I'm worse than, all kinds of things. Conceit. Then ninth is... Um, this is a very interesting one, and uh, is restlessness. I'm not sure exactly how that works myself. This is considered to be a very high... I understand restlessness as being a form of suffering, but how it actually uh, talks about it as an entanglement, how restlessness kind of... I think there kind of can be a kind of very deep-seated restlessness that keeps us always going and wanting. And so, it, you know, it's the fuel for being entangled. Hmm? Like a workaholic, but you don't have. But you know, workaholic. I mean, our poor minds. Even if you're completely, you know, minds sometimes work overtime, even if we're not working. And then, um, but you can see it. You, know, you sit down and meditate, and you sit. Sometimes you can sit very quietly in meditation, and you sit from on retreat maybe for many days, and you, and there's still a kind of <coughs> agitation. Deep down, very deep layer of agitation, 
But keeping the mind going, keeping the mind spinning out into its thoughts and concerns, even though there's a lot of relaxation, a lot of ease that's happening, that agitation is still operating. And perhaps, you know, that's what keeps us, it's that agitation that keeps us entangled, keeps us involved or caught by things. And then the tenth uh, entanglement is the entanglement of ignorance, of, um, of ignoring, of not understanding, specifically not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Um, so if you don't understand the Four Noble Truths, then um, it's really hard to understand where to find the path of practice. A part of the function of the Four Noble Truths is to help us find the path to liberation. And so if you understand your experience through the Four Noble Truths, you find the path to untangling. But if you don't understand, if you, if you ignore your experience, if you, if you ignore the Four Noble Truths as an orientation for understanding your experience, then uh, you'll stay entangled. Yes, Pesha? Eight was conceit. Six and seven I, I lumped together. Six and seven I lumped together as attachment to spiritual experiences. The two different categories of spiritual experiences. I just lumped them together. So the entanglements. So stay close at hand with your sense experience and notice how you get entangled. Notice how you get caught. And then see if you can uncaught yourself, uncatch yourself, loosen yourself from all that. And, uh, and um, in any case, it's really healthy and really beautiful and wonderful to um, live in our senses. And I recommend it to all of you and I hope that it helps you uh, in the wonderful practice of safeguarding your sense, safeguarding your, safeguarding yourself at the sense doors. So we have about uh, four minutes. If anybody would like to ask any questions or make some comments about this, this would be a good time. Yes. Um, you said that these uh, these things aren't normally taught. Why is that? Um, I think maybe it's kind of uh, maybe not so easy to talk about in a way that. Uh, you know, is compelling or, you know, or I don't know exactly. I mean, it just, there's a list of six. I mean, you know, it's kind of dry. I don't have a good answer for you. Sorry. Yes? You said that what is real is what we can perceive, so what our senses are. But we can't sense ultraviolet, or we can't sense infrared, or we can't sense. Sorry, those. Oh, so what's empirically real? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I mean, uh, see the um, the uh, first of all, the, you know, this ancient Buddhist tradition was 2,500 years ago that they were considering this, and what they're concerned about is really understanding our own empirical experiences, because that is where. Uh, that's where the suffering and freedom of suffering w- will occur. And so um, it doesn't really matter, you know, what is real beyond our sense experience uh, is, is kind of, for the, pur- for the purposes of liberation, is not that interesting. So ultraviolet light is not so interesting 
for the purposes of, of, of personal liberation, of freeing yourself from these fetters, these, these tangles. So, so, um, so I probably spoke not so well then, because I said, what is real? But what's real for the purposes, what's, what's real as empirical experiences that belong to the domain of our, you know, how we suffer and how we create our world, it begins at the sense doors. Does that help at all? <coughs> yes. Spiritual experiences. Okay, so that the um, what the what these uh, they, they refer to the eight uh, eight jhanas, eight absorptions uh, that uh, people do deep concentration work. So um, and there's two categories of these. There's the first four, which um, is the uh, called uh, the absorptions on form, and uh, so that's uh, fetter number six. And then the fetter number seven is the absorption in the formless realm, the last of the four jhanas. So then the plan is for next week to talk about the seven factors of awakening. <coughs> and it turns out, I think it's pretty much a, co- a coincidence, but um, in December we have a Dharma practice day, which is these days on Friday where we kind of look at some subject in Buddhism. Uh, and uh, we're, the next one in December we're going to talk, uh, we're going to look at the seven factors of awakening. So you could hear the lecture, the talk next Monday, and then you can you're interested to go further with it, you can come to that uh, Dharma practice day in December. So, um, thank you.